And as you're finding Luke chapter 8, let me kind of tell you where we are headed over the next several Sundays and Saturdays. We are starting a brand new series tonight called It's Personal. And we, we sent out a, a promotional video. Maybe some of you have seen it. But let me just kind of tell you that this series is going to take us all the way up to Easter weekend, which really is not that far from now. Just literally just four weeks from now, it starts on, you know, I couldn't believe Easter actually lands on April 1st this year of all the luck, you know. But I'll tell you, April Fool's Day around here, but he is no fool who calls Jesus his Lord. And so it's got, Easter is coming. This is the series that's going to take us up to Easter. And the whole idea of this series is for us to go to God's Word and explore some stories together. Stories about interactions and exchanges that Jesus had with people. And these interactions and these exchanges absolutely changed these people's lives. It changed the course, the whole trajectory of their lives. I mean, it's like we're going to see these stories. I mean, like one minute, their lives are heading down this direction. But they have this interaction with Jesus some of them were lengthy. Some of them were a short and brief interaction, but it completely changed their life after that. I would say that we're going to look at some moments where Jesus gets involved with somebody's life, and it gets very personal, and it changes everything. Let me give you just a quick example. Like in Luke chapter 5, when, when Jesus looked out and he saw some fishermen who were cleaning their nets by the shore. And they were cleaning them after a long night of fishing that yielded absolutely no fish. And there was this fisherman there. His name was Peter. And he immediately questioned Jesus when Jesus looked at him and said, I want you to go back out there and fish some more. That request by Jesus didn't make a lot of sense to Peter, and Peter begins to question. He's like, well, you know, we have worked hard all night, but then Peter, who looks at Jesus, and he considers that it is Jesus that's telling him to do this, and, and he says, but because it's you that's doing the asking, I guess we'll do it. Now, if you know the story, Peter and his friends, they went back out into the Sea of Galilee, and they dropped their nets, and do you remember what happened? This miraculous catch of fish. I mean, all these fish come into the net so much, the Bible says, that Peter's nets began to break, and they had to signal their buddies that were still on the shore to come out, and they're starting to pull up the nets. And the Bible paints this picture that the nets were so full, the boats became so full that all the boats began to sink. And when Peter finally grasped how huge this moment was out there on the Sea of Galilee. He stopped what he was doing, the Bible says. He fell to his knees right there in the boat, right there on this huge pile of fish on his knees. This boat is taking on water. His buddies all around them are having the same experience. Their boats are almost swamped. And things get real personal next. Peter looks up at Jesus who's also in the boat with him. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And this is such an odd response to us who we only can see this through the lenses of somebody. This isn't amazing. Peter saw it in a completely different light. It was in that moment. Peter knew that he was in the presence of greatness and all he could see in himself was a sinner. And he's like, you gotta go away from me, Lord, because we can't be here together. You're great, I'm not. And Jesus said, don't be afraid. From now on, and don't you love what he says next, you will fish for people. 
Some translations say you'll be a fisher of men. Your whole life is going to be different. Your whole life is going to change from this point forward. It got real personal. Now, this is not Peter's first interaction with Jesus, but it was in this moment that I believe Peter went from curious to committed. I believe it's in this moment that Peter went from observer to true follower. Because right then he left everything and he followed Jesus. I believe that this is the moment in Luke chapter 5 that Peter would always look back on during his life. And he says, that's the day it got real. That's the day it got personal. And if you're a Christian today, I believe that there is at least one moment that you should point back to and say, that's when it got personal. I believe every Christian has that. That's when it got personal for me. That's when God got a hold of my heart. That's when that's, that, that story might start this way. That's when God showed up in a huge way. That moment might start that way. That's when I knew that God really did love me. That's when things began to change in my life. That's when I repented of my sins. If you're a Christian today, you have a moment in your past that starts like that. It's when it got personal. And this series is about those moments. We read about them all throughout the New Testament and we will do so in this series. And our church right here is full of these kinds of moments too. And throughout this series, we will be hearing from people in this church about the moment it got personal. I believe that by learning about these moments, both in the scripture and learning about the moments that people have had in our church I believe that by examining those, that God is going to show each of us some things. Now, those things are going to be different for each of us because we come from different places. But I believe God wants to show you something. I think God wants you to see some things that perhaps you haven't seen before. I think God wants you to learn some things. He knows what you need. He knows where you're at right now. He knows what he wants you to know. And I believe that he's going to use God's word and he's going to use the stories in our church over the next few weeks to show you some things. Why? Because it is personal. Faith is a personal thing. There is nothing about this that's not personal. So do you still have your Bibles? You still got them open to Luke chapter 8? I would like for us to start right there as we kick off this series this series, we're starting with Luke 8, and it is about these two amazing miracles that Jesus did almost simultaneously with each other, and he could not have done these miracles for two people who were more different than who we're going to read about. I'm confident that neither of these people that we're going to read about were ever the same after this, and I believe as well that this is the moment in each of their lives that they would look back to later in life and say, that's the moment it got real. That's the moment that all this got personal. Let's start in verse 40 of chapter 8. It starts like this. 
Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Well, this, this encounter starts on a very sad note, doesn't it? He's this guy named Jairus. He's got a daughter, and, and she's dying. The Bible tells us that Jairus was a synagogue leader, which means this, that he was a prominent member of his community. This is the guy that carried around some clout. This is somebody who people would look at, and they would say, he's got his act together. He's the synagogue leader. He's somebody that's supposed to have his world all figured out. Everything's in order. And, and he was just a very well-respected man among the people. His job as the synagogue leader was to direct the services and the affairs of the synagogue. So for the Jewish community, the synagogue was their house of worship. So he was in charge of the things that went on there. The services, the affairs is a very important position. Now, something that's important to note here, it's, it's, we definitely need to mention it, is that by this point in Jesus' ministry, by Luke chapter 8, there is a growing opposition among the Jewish leadership to Jesus. They're not in agreement with what he's doing, who he claims to be, and, and this large crowd of people, then his large reputation that he's beginning to have. And most likely, Jairus would have been among those Jewish leaders who would have at least at this point been suspicious or suspect of Jesus. He would not have been a guy that is like jumping on the Jesus train and following him around from village to village. That's not who Jairus was. The title, his standing in the community, would not lead us to make that conclusion. The very fact that Jairus came to Jesus in front of everybody, just speaks to how desperate that his situation was. And it probably, he did that at great risk to his job. I mean, there's a good chance that after this, he wasn't allowed to continue because he, it would be viewed as he was siding with, with Jesus. Now, his daughter, you know, it's his only daughter. Some believe that it, perhaps even his only child, based on the way the original Greek language reads, you could draw that conclusion. But either way, he has a daughter. She's about 12 years old. We don't know what her illness was. But at this point in the story, her life is slipping away. You can almost hear the clock ticking. That's the way it sounds. You've got to come quick, Jesus. My daughter is dying. My only daughter, you have to come. And Jairus knows that this is a desperate Nothing else matters except my daughter moment. So he pleads with Jesus to come. And Jesus goes with him. Which is an interesting thing. We'll talk about it here in just a moment. That here's a guy that probably has been on the critical side of Jesus. But Jesus, without hesitation, gets up and he goes. And then this happens. Let's keep reading. As Jesus was on his way... The crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up from behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that the power 
has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. This is kind of an unexpected turn of events. If, if you're reading this for the very first time and you're like, wow, Jesus is going to go to Jairus' house. Oh, wait a minute. What's this? Like, this, this is unexpected. I mean, they're, they're on their way. They're rushing to Jairus' house because literally his daughter is dying and every single second counts in this case. Time is definitely of the essence, but everything is brought to a screeching halt because of this unnamed woman. We don't know her name. We never learn her name, but we do know some things about her. The Bible gives us some details. She has been the subject of bleeding for 12 years. The Bible does not get any more specific than that. But most people assume that she is suffering from a gynecological problem. That's what most people assume here. And if that's true, then her actions and the way that she behaves and the way that she is in our text, it, it makes sense. It's understandable, if that's the case, why she wants to go unnoticed. She wants help. She doesn't want attention, okay? This is her. Now, if you know anything about the law of Moses, which all the Jewish people in that day were subject to that law, they were living under that law, they would have been held to certain standards for the kind of issue that she has. Society of that day would have had a certain way of looking at this as well. And what they would have done because of this problem, they would have put a lot of heavy restrictions on, on her. Now, you can go back whenever you want, and you can read Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 through 33, if you want to know the details about what those restrictions were in that day. But essentially, this is what they were. She would be viewed by society as unclean. That's the word. She would have been viewed for 12 straight years as somebody who is unclean. Now, what that means translated into everyday life, it means that because she had an unclean status, she would have been excluded from temple worship. She could not have gone, quote unquote, to church. She couldn't have been with her people. So imagine for 12 years, you're like, you can't be around us. You're unclean. You can't be in here. She couldn't spend any time in public with people. So she was ostracized. You're, you're not with us. You can't be with us. You need to go back home. Anyone who touched her, even by accident or brushed up against her, and what, they became unclean themselves and had to go through this ritual you can read about in the Old Testament to become clean again. You can go read Numbers chapter 19, verse 22, for some more instructions on what needed to be done. She had a very hard life is what I'm trying to tell you. I would say that the results of her medical condition is probably worse than the actual condition. If you think about it, she didn't just have a medical problem. 
She had a social problem. And if the letter of the law was obeyed, and, and we have any reason to think that it wasn't in this case, she was probably extremely lonely. Like I said, she was ostracized from her family and her friends. She couldn't be around them. And probably after 12 years, she was just considered an outcast by people. No, she did not want to be noticed as Jesus was walking that day to Jairus' house. Her story is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark. And, and both of those accounts give us a few extra details that Luke doesn't. We learn that she spent everything that she had trying to cure herself. She spent everything. She had nothing left, but she just got worse. That was the, the heartache in all this. And she, like Jairus, I think in this encounter, she senses that she has nowhere else to turn. Jairus was like, I think he reached the point of desperation. It was like, if I can just get to Jesus, if I can just get to the crowd, if I can just talk to him, then things, I might have a chance. And I think she had the same kind of mentality. I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't have any more money. I've got no doctors got any answers. If I can just get to Jesus, if I can just get through, if I can just touch him, I know things, there's a chance. Jairus and this lady, they come from two completely different worlds. But they had a singular purpose together. They were at the end of the rope. And at the end of that rope was Jesus. Sometimes we come to Jesus like that. Out of desperation. I've got nothing else. I've got nowhere else to go. I'm at the end of my rope and, and all that's left is maybe Jesus. You don't have to raise your hands, but did any of you come to faith out of desperation? Is that your story? Did you come to Jesus out of a desperate moment? Is there anybody in this room today? You don't have to raise your hands. But is there anybody that's feeling desperate right now, saying, I relate to Jairus? I relate to this woman. I relate to her desperation because I'm feeling desperate myself. Maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking to yourself, if I could just get to church, if I could just sing some songs, if I could just be with godly people, if I could just hear the sermon, if I could say a prayer, if somebody would leave me, it's desperate. Maybe there's a chance. I don't know if I'm describing anybody here tonight. But I want you to know desperation is not a bad thing if it leads you to the right thing, and that is Jesus. Desperation can put you on the fast track to getting personal with the Lord, and that is what we're seeing in the text. Desperate Jairus makes his way to Jesus with a request. A desperate woman sneaks through the crowd with hope and faith that if she can just get close enough to touch Jesus' clothes, then there might be hope. And the second that she comes up behind Jesus, which is a very important detail in the text, because she is in Jesus' blind spot, he can't see her. As soon as she comes up from behind and she touches Jesus' clothes, he knows it. And everything comes to a screeching halt. How did Jesus know that he got touched? Well, we know because he's Jesus. But everybody else was wondering, how did you know? 
How did you know that that the crowds, that the Bible makes very clear, the crowds were crushing in around him, and we get this impression that everybody was touching Jesus. So how could he differentiate between the crowd and a single touch of his cloak? How how did he do that? Even Peter was like, "Uh, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What do you mean who touched you? I mean, I really get this impression that there's like this mob of people going with Jesus because Jairus, this respected man, requested him to do so. And then all of a sudden he stops around this huge crowd and just says, who touched me? And when no one would fess up that they intentionally touched Jesus, Jesus said, no, somebody touched me. And here's how I know, because I felt power leave me. Now, now he's the Messiah and he knows what that would feel like. I don't know what that would feel like. But he says, I felt power go out from me. A healing had taken place. The second she touched his clothes, she was healed. And this is so unlike all the other healings that we read about from Jesus. It begs us to ask this question. Is she the only one in Scripture that happened to be able to sneak a healing out of Jesus? I mean, did she actually do that? Did she sneak one when Jesus wasn't looking? Not, not exactly. When I was in, <coughs> excuse me, when I was in Israel last summer, we visited a little town um, just on the coast of the Sea of Galilee called Magdala. Fascinating place. I'd love to go back and spend more time there. They're excavating it. It's, it's an awesome place. But this, is, this was the home of Mary Magdalene. She was an early follower of Jesus. She was one of the first people to see Jesus resurrected from the dead. This is her hometown. And in the town of Magdala, there is a modern-day church. And it's a beautiful place. I mean, they know how to build beautiful churches in Israel. The back of the platform um, is open to the Sea of Galilee. And the pulpit is actually a boat. And I brought a picture that I snapped, and, and uh, it's kind of hard to see, because, but you can kind of get the idea of it. You, you see this boat, and it's got this glass window. Now, behind that boat, it's not actually a boat. It won't float, but it's, it's a pulpit. And that's the, actually the Sea of Galilee in the backdrop. And if you look at the stage, it looks like a glossy... Um, I, don't, I don't have a picture to show you of that, but it's like this glossy, wavy-looking tile floor and it looks just like water and so you have this pulpit on this watery looking stage with the actual sea of galilee in the background and and when the preacher stands up to preach it gives the illusion to the congregation that he's actually in a boat that looks like a boat that jesus would have been in an early first century fishing boat um preaching i i I think it's pretty cool um too bad i wasn't thinking of that when we remodeled this place that would have been something It was awesome, but not as awesome as what was in the basement of that church. You walk downstairs, and there's a room. It's a good-sized room, and there is this painting hanging on the wall. It's huge. This painting takes up the, the whole room. It was so big, I couldn't get, I had to like do a panoramic on my phone to get it all in there. And this painting is a depiction of the healing of this woman in our, in our story. And I believe that the woman, the artist who, I believe this artist captures the moment that she's healed so well. 
let me show you this picture. And, and let me just give you a moment to look at it. Just look at this picture. This projected image does not do the painting any justice at all. If you ever get a chance to see it in person, it would be worth your while. And I think that the artist accurately depicts this woman reaching through the crowd, wanting to be unnoticed. Her hand is the only part of her that's painted, and she's touching just the edge of, of his garment. Nobody knew she was there, but Jesus knew she was there. And isn't that the real point? Nobody noticed her. It's the way she wanted it. But Jesus knew she was there. And I want you to know that no matter how invisible you think you are, Jesus knows you're there. Jesus knows your name. And he knows where you live. He knows everything about you. And here's a truth that I see in this story that I see in other stories that I know is a truth in our lives. Nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing. And if we miss that truth in this miracle, then we've really missed a massive truth in our lives, that nothing escapes God's notice. Why? Because it's personal. It's personal to him. And it should be personal to us. So Jesus says, who touched me? That was the question. Of course he already knew, but he wanted her to come out of the shadows and identify herself. He was not looking to embarrass her. She had enough embarrassment already. That was not what Jesus was trying to do. But I believe that he was highlighting a very important truth that this crowd needed to know. And the truth was this, that faith in Christ, it is personal, but not private. Faith in Christ, it is personal, but not private. Following Jesus Christ is not an in-the-shadows activity, and I hope you know that. When Jesus would later send out all 12 of his disciples on what we would refer to as a short-term missions trip, he sends them out, and he gives them all these instructions, but he says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 through 33. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. That's some powerful stuff. Faith in Christ, it is personal, but it is not private. You know, um, if you look at verse 47 again, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So all of a sudden, we're out of the shadows, and she's giving testimony. She, she's giving a public admission that Jesus did this, and she is healed. And Jesus says to her, what? Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I love what Mark Moore writes. Mark Moore was a professor of mine in Bible college. He now is a pastor at a church in Arizona. 
He's written a lot of books. One was called The Chronological Life of Christ. It's phenomenal. He writes about this miracle. He says, Jesus elicits her full public confession, which she wants to avoid. Jesus isn't trying to embarrass her by making her reveal her problem, but if her faith is to be fully developed, not to mention that of the crowd, she needs to make a public statement. Sometimes I think we undervalue just how public our private relationship with Jesus really is. You know, when we do baptisms here, and I hope you've seen baptism, we have a baptism tomorrow morning. One thing that we do around here is we give the person who's being baptized an opportunity to, to, to make a public statement about what they believe. Now, usually it goes down like this. There's no magic formula. There, there's not, it even comes out of me different every, every single time. But when we're in the baptistry, I'll ask them just to repeat their good confession. Perhaps you've heard it. It goes like this. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'm choosing this day to make him my personal Lord and Savior. Faith in Christ is personal. But it's not private. Well, here's what happens next. Look at verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. He said, don't bother the, te- he said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. John and James, the child's father and mother, and, and Peter, I missed that one. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. There is no doubt that the healing of this woman delayed Jesus. And sadly, while he is healing this woman and dealing with the crowd and getting her testimony and her coming out of the shadows and going public with her faith, it was in that moment during all that that Jairus' daughter actually did pass away. And so someone from the house that couldn't have been very far from Jairus' home comes back out to where Jesus is. He's still talking to the crowd about what's going on with this woman. And they're like, hey, Jairus, I hate to tell you this. Your daughter died. Leave Jesus alone. There's no need for him to come now. But Jesus is like, you ignore that bad advice. You ignore that advice. Because I am coming to your house. And with the parents and with Peter, James, and John... You know the rest of the story. We just read it. Jesus restores this woman back to life. I've already mentioned that this miracle should remind us and highlight this fact that nothing escapes God's notice, but it also reveals something else about Jesus. It reveals to us another layer of the Lord's compassion. And that's probably something we don't spend enough time talking about in church either, of just how compassionate Jesus was. Let me point out a couple details that highlights this extra layer of compassion that Jesus had. You go back to Jairus, most likely a critical voice in the discussion about Jesus. Up to his daughter getting sick, Jairus probably would have sided with the religious leaders and saying there's something problematic with Jesus. He needs to be dealt with. But when he comes to Jesus, Jesus just looks right past 
probably the criticism, and he goes with him anyway. Friends, I'm going to tell you, that's a layer of compassion that a lot of us just don't have. It tells me something about our Savior and the way he sees people. Then you have this woman with the issue of blood by the very nature of the law. When she touched Jesus, he would have, he should have been declared unclean in that moment. But Jesus was unfazed by her touch. What that touch could have meant for him, completely unfazed by it. Jairus and this woman, when they met Jesus, when Jairus and this woman met Jesus, they did not know that this is the same Jesus who would also rebuke his disciples when they tried to keep little children from coming to him because Jesus had a massive amount of compassion for little children, which was a helpless person in Jesus' day. Jairus and this woman met the same Jesus who one time would become so tired that he wanted to be alone. And so he got on a boat and he withdrew to a solitary place and he docked this boat somewhere else. And when the people found out where he was, they rushed him. And the first response Jesus had to them was compassion. And he healed their sick. Why was Jesus so compassionate? Why is the Lord still so compassionate towards us? Because it's personal to him too. And I believe that it is logical to think, I believe it's probable to assume that when Jairus and this unnamed woman was healed, when they think back to when things got personal between them and Jesus, when they think back to their day, when they would tell others later, that's the day I became a believer. That's the day it got personal. When they would tell others, that was the day that I found out how huge God was and how much compassion he had and how much he loved me despite me. When they look back, I believe this is the moment that changed everything when it got personal. And so I ask you this question. When was the moment it got personal for you? I'd love to hear your story. I'd love for you to take a minute and email me your story of when it got personal between you and God. I'd love to read it. Our church is full of stories of when it got personal. One of those stories from our church is Christine's story. And I'd love to share her story with you just now. It's a powerful story that definitely highlights these two truths about the Lord, that nothing escapes his notice. And his compassion for us is always there. I'd like to ask you to turn your attention to the screens behind me. This is Christine's story. I was born and raised in London, England, and um, when I was about 22, I, I emigrated to America um, with friends and lived here for a while, eventually got married, um, eventually got my citizenship in 1987, which I'm very proud of. Um, my husband died of lung cancer when my children were quite small, and so then I went out to work and most of my adult life was in San Diego. My upbringing was in England. It wasn't a particularly Christian 
upbringing. It's not that my my mother and father weren't not Christian-like, but they didn't go to church. And, and actually, at that time in school, um, they taught religious instruction. They called it RI. And so every week we had an hour of religious instruction. So that was my introduction to uh, to Christ and God. My true journey with God really began seven years ago. I had a journey, I thought I had a journey, but the true journey began seven years ago. And when things happened in my personal life, and there was this time, through circumstances, I was going to be homeless. And I didn't know what to do. There was me and Jackson and the car with our stuff in it. And I didn't know what to do. I don't have any family here. I didn't know anyone in the church personally. And it was the strangest thing. I'd been going to Al-Anon to help me with my circumstances. And I'd met this lady and she runs an organization called Oasis, which is for single mothers, recovering addicts. And she had a spare room. And she, I, I ran into her and she said, let me help you. And she let me stay at this home with Jackson for six months until we could save up and we got our own place. That's when I knew God was holding me because this came out of nowhere. It wasn't like I turned to anybody for help. And she was there and she took care of us. That was the beginning of my true journey. So I was growing spiritually more than I realized. And I came to know Christ. I, I actually physically one day knelt and said, God help me. You, I know you're there for me. And, um, and it reminds me a lot of when Pastor Joe, one of his services, he had the ladder and everyone's on a different run with this ladder. And there I was underneath the ladder for so many, for the majority of my life. And now I had come, I had reached that first run of being a true follower of Christ. Jackson's mother is my daughter, or was, and she suffered with an illness. And it was a very sad life that she led. And Jackson hadn't seen her physically for two years, and she passed away. I, I had my own heartbreak because she was my daughter, but I also had to tell Jackson about this. And I didn't know, how, how are you going to tell a five-year-old boy that his mother's dead? And then again, it came into my brain. Jackson's a believer. He is a true believer. Jackson, I know, is in his hands. And I'm, God is coming through me and taking care of Jackson. And the optimism, all the people. I have so many stories I would need two weeks to tell you how people have been involved in my life and come from out of nowhere. God, when there's a need, God sends me a habitat or a place to live or food from churches, it's always been provided. And I'm so grateful to this church, then my family, all my friends now from the church and my family, the schools, the, the people that have helped us, I'm so grateful. But most of all, God, God, 
Jesus, through Jesus and God, I don't believe my life would be what it is today without our faith, Jackson's faith and my faith. We would not be where we are. And I thank God, I truly get down on my knees and bless him for what he's given us.